Hello and welcome to the Filmmaking Stuff Podcast, where you'll get insider tactics on how to make, market, and sell your movie without the middleman. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, LA-based motion picture executive, Jason Brubaker. Hey, we're back with Craig Spector, part two of the story about how Craig, you know, really got his start in this crazy industry. And Craig, you were just saying, <laughs> right, right when we bailed out of the last interview, that somebody had sat down with you and said, I want to buy your book. Yes, yes. We, we, had, uh, we had successfully delivered the manuscript to the publisher uh, that they knew nothing about and had never heard of and never heard of us. And, um, and then you know, I did, as, as we recall from the last part, one of this podcast, um, I had delivered the mess, the manuscript as a messenger run and it successfully made it through the wall, uh, that the publisher has up, uh, to protect themselves from unknown writers, coming in bearing five pounds of unknown manuscript that they never asked for. And so, so the, the person that sat down and said they wanted to buy your book, is that the same person that initially read your manuscript or was that somebody else within the, no, company? that was the same guy. That was, he was a, an up and coming editor okay. at Bantam books. And he's the guy who read the proposal, uh, and, uh, on the elevator on his way to lunch and then came back and, you know, typed up something and threw it in his outbox, and we got a response the next day saying, "You know, I'd I'd like to see sample chapters." Um, and then he read he read the sample chapters, and then he asked to see the rest of the book, and he read the rest of the book, and then one day we got a call, uh, and uh, Lou Aronica wanted to talk to us about the light at the end, and and wanted to know if we had anything else. So, so what happens at this point? And like, how does that whole thing work? Do you, do you, Cause you didn't have an agent. You didn't have any sort of representation or did you? Nothing, nothing. Well, how, how'd you negotiate the deal? Well, it was really, it was very odd because, and this was again, uh, it was probably a radically different landscape because this was back in the mid 1980s. And at that time, publishers, if they were interested in an author, they were interested in more than just one book. Right. Uh, they wanted to see if they could build a relationship because the name of the game in publishing at that point was rack space in stores. Uh, they'd get a book, an author with a book come out and then they'd want to incrementally with each next book, increase the shelf space of that author's presence in the bookstore. That's interesting. I, I haven't thought about that much, but you kind of see that in any retail outlet, especially for whatever reason I'm thinking about the cereal aisle in a grocery store where some of these cereal companies take up the entire shelf space. Yeah, that's that's that was the name of the game back then. Um, so he's asking, uh, do you guys have anything else? And, and of course he said. Uh, we said, of course, you know, and, um, you know, and then it's like, oh, shit. Now, what are we going to do? Um and I met John, uh, I think, on a park bench behind the New York Public Library one day. And, you know, I skated up, you know, and he's sitting on the park bench, you know, um, and he and we talked about all this, you know, and we, we talked about different other uh, book ideas that had been kicking around. Um, and for me, 
it, it was it was a different conversation for both of us because at that moment, John was the one who was planning on being a writer. Right. Because I I wasn't planning on being a writer. For me, the right, you're a musician, I'm right? A musician, you know. And for me, the light of, the light at the end was this kind of cool one off project. Um, but all of a sudden, here this door opens of like you know this major publisher wants to buy the book and then also wants to know if we have any other books and I'm the little gears in my, you know, 20, whatever, 23 year old head are turning and I'm like, well, beats being a street messenger. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So at this point, at this point, you're a street messenger, you're living with a bunch of people. You got these aspirations that, you know, are pretty out there. Um, and now through your own, you know, backdoor ingenuity of trying to figure out how to work the system, you figured out how to get a manuscript in a guy's hands. And now he's making an offer to buy a book and he wants to know what other stuff you have. I mean, how, what does that feel like? Uh, it's, it's a, it's a rush. I bet. It's a, it's a rush. On the one hand, it's, it's, it's thrilling and exciting. And on the other hand, it's scary as hell. Cause it's like, Oh great. Now what are we going to do? Um, and so we sat there and we kicked around ideas for like five different books and we sort of laid them all out in the order that we'd like to do them and everything. And because we were also little multimedia Renaissance mutants at the time, you know, it wasn't just the books, of course. It was the books and the movies and the albums, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, we... Well, P.S., these days they call that transmedia. So you were an early pioneer on that. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, uh, and so we mapped that all out. Uh, and not only did we map that all out, you know, I was uh, a, a renegade graphic arts student. And so... I went home and got out my uh, sort of colored markers and everything and charted out a five-year timeline, multi, you know, multicolored five-year timeline of the evolution of book, movie, album, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we go in to meet at Bantam Books, and it was just funny. I mean, we're so broke. We're so, we're so young. We're so broke. I think John had to borrow a suit and borrow shoes to go to the meeting, you know, um, and we come in there and we sit down and it's all just, you know, the happy chat, right? Uh, we're sitting in the editor's office and they're talking about how much the, he and his editorial assistant are talking about how much they love the light at the end. And they're talking about like, you know, I, you guys killed off the main character halfway through the book and, and it worked, you know, it's like, who does that? You know, interesting. who yeah. does that? And um, we were just having fun talking about it. And at a certain point, you know, the chat part ends. Anybody who's ever done a pitch meeting would know this. And um, it's time to get down to business. And so Lou starts to segue. And he's like, so uh, do you have anything else? And John and I kind of looked at each other. And I still, I was still, you know, I had my messenger bag with me, you know. And I was like, well, we've got this. And I reached into my messenger bag and pulled out. This yeah, multicolored graph <laughs> of these of these five different books. And we started pitching them one by one by one, like boom, boom, boom. Well, next is this, and next is this, and that, you know, and he's 
watching us and he's going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And about five minutes into this, he's he said, could you guys hang on for just a second? You know, and we're like, sure. You know, we pause and, and he reaches over for his phone, you know, and he calls his, you know, he dials up his secretary and he's like, could you hold all my calls for the rest of the afternoon? Um, and then, you know, puts the phone down. He's like, no, go ahead, go ahead. And um, we continue pitching, you know, and and we're just at that point, we're just having fun. We're just talking about the stories. You know, it would be this. And then it would be this. First of all, let, let me stop you here, Craig, because I, I think some people listening to this who's never been into a pitch meeting won't understand the gravity of what you just said. Yeah. Here's a, here's an incredibly busy executive that's cutting out everything for the rest of his day to listen to your pitches. This never happens. This never happens. Ever. You know, um, and he's and, and you you were so young, you probably didn't even know you, you that probably set a new precedent for, you know, it, like raised the standard of what you expected in a pitch. Maybe. <laughs> well, and we were too we were so young that we were too young to know to be scared. <laughs> right. Like it was just like cool. You know, um we're just it's rock and roll baby. You know, it's like let's go. And so we were pitching all the books, you know, and we get through with our our big drum roll of a pitch and Lou actually sat there in the room and he's like, "Wow, uh well, uh this sounds great. I I want all of them." Oh my gosh. Yeah, I want them all. Another thing that never happens. That never happens. And then <laughs> And then he said, do you have an agent? And <laughs> and I just looked at him. You know, I looked him right in the eye. I'm like, no, do you recommend one? <laughs> you know, and he paused because that never happens on his side. Right. You know, and he pauses it and he thinks about it for a moment. And he's like, I'm really not supposed to do this, but uh, there's this woman I love dealing with. And, uh, you know, he writes down her name, her agency and her number and, you know, hands it to me. And we head off, you know, go call the agent. And so we walk out of there. We, we get in the elevator. We go down to the lobby. We go to the, and remember, this is 1984 or thereabouts. Um, people don't have cell phones. Yeah. Um, you know, cell phones were still like a brick with a cable on it, you know, and a, and a bag that you slung across. Sure. The um, and so we went to the bank of payphones in the lobby of the building of six, six, six fifth Avenue and called up this agency and they answer the phone. And I was like, hi, you don't know us, but, uh, my name is Craig Spector. Uh, I'm part of a partnership, John Skip and Craig Spector. And, um, we're, we just came out of a meeting with Lou Aronica at Phantom books and, uh, we have five books that he wants to buy. And so we were wondering uh, would you possibly be interested in being our agent and negotiating the deal? This never happens. Right. No, we're, we're going way out of order here, but I love it. Yeah. <laughs> we're just, we're, we are so, we're so off the reservation in terms of how things normally occur uh, that at a certain point you just got to go fuck it. And so, you know, they're like, uh, well, we'd love to talk to you. And so they set up a meeting, you know, for, uh, you know, the next day and we go over to their agency, which at the time was on the Upper West Side and a big sprawling apartment uh, on the on uh, the Upper West Side. And we go in the meantime, what we don't know is in the meantime, they have gotten in touch with Lou Aronica 
Um, and they've hammered out the basic structure of the deal. And so, so they're already negotiating. You're on side. You could, you could have walked away from them. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But they've already they've already pretty much negotiated the whole damn deal. Um, and it was just being put to us for our acceptance and approval. You know, and um, the first thing they did is the uh, the first thing the agents did is is they said that uh, we want to split this five book deal into a two book and three book deal. Uh, and that's good for you for these reasons, and it's good for them for these reasons. And we're like, okay, <laughs> it's like that sounds cool, you know. Um, and then they said that they were they were going to uh, that the publisher was offering for the light at the end and the second book, which was the cleanup. Uh, they wanted to offer us fifty thousand dollars, and that was fifty thousand dollars in nineteen eighty four money. Yeah, I was going to say that's that's a pretty substantial amount of money. I mean, you got to figure out you got to figure you're you're coming from a perspective of you're you're a you're a roller skate messenger living with a bunch of people in a house. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a roller skating street messenger making about one hundred fifty bucks a week, you know, if I'm lucky. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden they're like, you know, $50,000, you know, which we would be splitting, of course, because we're splitting everything. And, um, the, you know, the agents explained to us, it was a husband and wife agent team. And they explained, well, this would be good for us because if we perform well on the first two books, then when we come back to renegotiate the second set of three books, we'll be in a better negotiating position, you know. And... So that's what we did. And they offered us $50,000 for the first two books. And we said, yes. And just like that, we had, a, we walked out of there and we had a, uh, we had a publisher and we had an agent and we had a deal. And it was a little surreal. It was a little bit surreal. And then they, uh, you know, we come back in, a, a, I don't know, it was a few days later, a week later or so. And they're like, okay, everything's good. Uh, how do you want? How do you want your your first payment? You know, and and John and I didn't even blink. We I, we just both at the same time we said cash. <laughs> you know? no, no, you didn't. Yeah, we did. We said cash, cash, fifty cash. fifty thousand dollars in cash. Cash. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I want to. I want to just kind of reiterate that you know, fifty thousand dollars in nineteen eighty four money is about. I I don't have a calculator in front of me, but I'm sure it's well over six figures. Oh yeah, yeah. From nineteen eighty four dollars to twenty nineteen dollars, that was easily a, a, a fairly hefty six figure deal. You know. Um, yeah, I mean, if you if you ever watch the movie Real Genius from the eighties, like that one guy's aspiration was to make fifty thousand dollars a year when he graduated, yeah, you yeah. know, college. It was like. That that's a substantial amount of money in 1984. Yeah. So you guys, you guys are working. Well, you're asking for what's equivalent of like over six figures in yeah. cash. <laughs> what, what are you going to do? Put it in your like, bicycle like, messenger bag? Like a fucking and drug deal, you know. Um, and, and so they they look, these people must have thought you were well, so out of your mind, us and they're like, "So cash it is," you know. And it's like it's like it'll t- it'll take us a bit to put that together, and it's like, "Oh, that's fine," you know. It's like. And then they call us up a couple of days later to come on in, you know, and we come in and they have the contracts ready and we sign the contracts and then they direct us to a table where there's a giant pile of cash. Oh my gosh. You know, and divided neatly in half, you know, and 
we just start, you know, I'm, I'm like wearing cargo jeans and like a, you know, a army jacket with multiple pockets and stuff. Just start picking up racks of bills and just stuffing them in pockets. You know, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even know, like I'm having a hard time even responding to this because you know, Craig, I've known you for a little while and I got to say, this is the first time I've heard this part of the story. It's pretty funny. It's really funny. You know, and then we, it's, and then we get, and then we go walking out, right? And okay, so now we're just kind of like, hey, well, you know, now what do you want to do? This is great, you know. Um, and we're sort of walking down the street, and I'm thinking, uh, as we're walking down, and now we're on the Upper West Side, and we're walking toward the subway, and I'm like, I'm looking at all these people. It's like if they only knew how much we're carrying on us. We are so muggable. Yeah, right you now. guys were idiots. You know, but, idiots. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's the it's the courage of youth. <laughs> I, I totally get it, but um, yeah. so let me just stop you for a second. So, so you're carrying around fifty thousand dollars in cash, but I, I want to know, you know, anytime any of us have had those feelings where where you took a step in your career that was positive, some people got a new job, you landed a new gig, there's a new opportunity on the table, and that that little piece of excitement, what does it feel like to take something that, that you just imagined and now it's a reality? It feels surreal. You know, uh, it, there's, it's a period of adjustment. Might take a moment, um, and I, uh, uh, for my part, um, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure what John did when he went home, but um, you know, I was living with my girlfriend at the time. We had gotten out of the the crazy house full of people and had our own yep. little apartment. And um, so I get on the subway and I'm riding home. You know, I'm stu- my pockets are stuffed with like bricks of cash. You know. Um, and I get off the, the at my uh, you know I take it to like the stop at 65th Street near Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, and I'm walking through the sort of you know sketchy Puerto Rican neighborhood that I live in. Um, First of all, Times Square in the 1980s was somewhere you shouldn't be walking with cash, like yeah, let alone yeah, Brooklyn. Th- this was old funky, you know. This was old funky taxi driver era New York, you know. Um, <laughs> this is Martin Scorsese New York. This isn't Disney New York, and. Um, <laughs> You know, and I get to our little apartment and my girlfriend's there, you know, and she's like, so how did it go? And I'm like, and I just looked at her. I just looked at her and I just reached into my jacket pocket and I pulled out, you know, one, you know, brick of cash. (laughs) And then I reached into another pocket and pulled out another one, reach into my leg pocket, pull out another one, reach into the other leg pocket, pull out another. And I'm pulling out all this money. And I'm just unbanding it and throwing it on the bed, you know, literally just like throwing the the stacks of cash so they go loose and and the cash just goes loose and it's raining. It's literally raining money all over the bed. This is I I again I don't I'm speechless, man. I this is this is one of these like surreal stories. Uh, keep going. So you're throwing cash, <laughs> you're throwing bricks of cash in the air. I'm throwing cash. I'm throwing cash in the air and it's raining on the bed. Yeah. And I'm like, and then I look at her, I'm like, I think it went well, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's like, and there you go, kids. Welcome to the, welcome to a brave new world. I mean, it's like, I, for me, I saw this really strange door open up. Um, you know, when I was sitting on that park bench outside the New York public library. And when I said to myself, it was like beats being a street messenger. It's like, okay, yeah, here we go. And then I, and then suddenly it's like, well, this is great. And it's like, oh shit, we have a whole nother book to write. 
you know, and it's like the other thing is I I wasn't planning on being a writer. Now what do I do? Right. You you in, through all this you, you change your identity, right? Because you're you wanted to be a musician. Um mm-hmm. and you know, you went to a prestigious school for that. And and yet, you know, the one day you're on the subway or whatever and, and on the train and you have this idea, and now this idea has put cash literally in your pockets. Yeah. Um, and now you're faced with the decision where it's like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to be known as a writer. Well, and and then I'm going to, you know, we are going, you know, I'm going to uh, meet at Bantam because now the book has been bought and now the book's going, you know, into production, you know, with copy editing and et cetera, et cetera. So there are all these sort of interim meetings where you go over to the publisher. And every time I go there now, you know, Lou's walking down the hall with us and, and all of these other editors and people are coming out and he's introducing us and they're like, you know, they're shaking my hand and going, Oh, I read your book. It's so great. I love that. You know? And I'm like, Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I'm looking at all these people and they're just, you know, heaping praise, you know, and I'm looking at them going, you know, two weeks ago, you wouldn't have trusted me to safely carry an envelope from 53rd street down to 26th street. You know, it's like, and and now and now and now here we are. You know, it's like yeah, I you know I forgot about that. You know, I've been I've been we all do right. We grind away so much in this industry. We have like little when you're around that stuff so much. Maybe you don't think about it the same way you do when you're 23 and broke. You know, and you're a roller skate messenger. But it wasn't just the financial growth. Now people are treating you different. Into a whole different class of human being. You know, um, and now I'm I'm part of this exciting new writing partnership that came from out of nowhere, and this was also at a point, by the way, where horror as a genre was heating up in publishing, uh, largely because of things like uh, the success of Stephen King, who was right. w- was still early on in his meteoric rise. Was that right around Carrie, or would have Carrie? I, I don't know much about his um, like was, when he released his films, but I know he he was the toast of the it, town. It was after Carrie, and and bef- and I think right before the Stand. Um. So it was like what was the intervening? Uh, I'm I'm blanking. It's too early. I haven't had enough caffeine yet. Uh, so, no, quite quite all right. But but, but at lot, this point, Salem's lot. Well, you know that. But was, you're you're in the right place at the right time because the 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 industry's starting to heat up for that particular genre. And here, you're starting to get hungry for it. Yeah. And here's these two fresh kids because you were kids mm-hmm. that that are now becoming the toast of the publishing world. And and we're also different because we we are not your typical sort of a you know uh, stereotypical tweedy writer you know and uh, coming out of the academic tradition um we're we're little rock and rollers you know we're like little black leather jacket you know you know rock and roll types you know my my favorite part about interviewing you Craig is is that you don't turn off your phone yeah there's always something coming <laughs> there's always something coming I'm, I'm leaving this in. I hope you know that. Yeah, that's my wife. My wife is calling from work. You know, it's like you—you you were just—you were talking about walking down the hall with the editors. Your your life had changed. You have money in your pockets. Uh, I'm horror as a genre is heating I'm, up. I'm suddenly I'm suddenly being celebrated. You know, by the very same people who wouldn't have trusted me to safely carry an envelope downtown. 
Um, well, what, what does that do? Because you, you mentioned being a rock and roller, right? And, and I couldn't help but think, like, if I'm 23 years old and somebody hands me the equivalent of, like, a six-figure uh, bit of cash right there on the spot, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something reckless. I did irresponsible something. I didn't do any. I didn't do anything. I think reckless, but I definitely bought some gear. You know, it's like I got some recording gear. I got a new guitar. You know, but I also realized uh, here's here's where it got interesting. Um, as these people are shaking my hand and I'm smiling and blah blah blah, I'm thinking, wow, I have exactly one year to become this guy they think I am, or I'm going to be the biggest asshole on the planet. You know, so, you know, there are writers who, you know, I was well aware even at the time, you know, there are writers who, who have spent their entire life, you know, working and laboring and dreaming of being in exactly the same position I am. And me, I just fell ass over tea kettle into it, you know, and I'm standing there and I realize I'm on a clock. I have a lot of catch up to do. You know, I've got to become the writer they think I am. So I think, I think that's pretty insightful. I mean, I, w- I wasn't thinking that way, you know, in my 20s. And certainly, if this kind of opportunity presented itself, I don't know if I would have had the, you know, the, just the insight, insight enough to know that these things, you're, you're only as good as the work that you're doing. Yeah. And you somehow had that insight. What do you think? What do you think put that in your head? Um. Well, I think it, the seeds of it were always in my head, but uh, strangely enough, uh, going to and graduating from one of the top music schools in the world helped drill that into my head because it drilled in the, the whole discipline of creativity, mm-hmm. um, where really at the end of the day, it's, it's, all, it's all about the work. You know, the work is what defines you. The work is what you know, gives you these opportunities and, and the work is really who you are. Um, and you're only as good as the work, you know, and all of your ego and affectation is, is all good and well, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't have the goods. <laughs> yeah. And there's another phone call. <laughs> and that one's going to voicemail. <laughs> and so basically uh, I set out to do that and and I looked at it and I'm like, well, yeah, I have to do that. And that's, that's a lot of pressure, but we know how to do this. You know, I mean, we already know how to do this. We did it. So let's do it again. You know, and this time, as I, I think I had said, I said in the first part one of this podcast at the time, you know, we only had one electric typewriter between us. Um, and I was writing, you know, writing my stuff in longhand and handing it to John, and he was tasked with having to type everything out. So, you know, one of the things I got, I got, I got a typewriter, you know, uh, because computers weren't really happening all that much then. Yeah. You know, um, so at least now we're both on typewriters, you know, but, but personal computers were starting to rear their heads. Um, and so... We sat down just with the second book. We did it just like the first book, and we started mapping it out with you know file cards and sharpie markers. It's like okay, you know, here's the story. We we knew the we knew the broad arcs of the story, but now we got to flesh it out. We got to beat it out. So you play this endless game of like, uh, okay, what about what if this happens, and uh, and then what happens? And you just keep playing that little mental game over and over again until you got the whole thing hammered out. 
And so we had that, you know, we developed an outline. And then at this point, because, you know, we're both like really fully in the game, um, we started dividing it up and like we've got the outline and okay. So John's going to write this chapter. I'm going to write that chapter. He's going to write this chapter. And we sort of chained our way through the first draft. And, you know, so we went to our respective corners, we start writing our respective chapters. And then when we finish a chapter, we throw the chapter over at each other and read it and then rewrite rewrite and the the whole skip inspector machine production machine was kind of uh formulated during this period and how how was your relationship at that point was it changing because you were both tasting success did he have a did john have a similar philosophy i mean i know he's not here so you know we don't want to talk about him too much but i'd love to know like how that was affecting the relationship, your, your success. Well, at the beginning of it, it was, you know, it worked uh, as I, as I tend to uh, look back on the skip and Vector partnership. It's like when it worked well, it worked really well. Um, when it worked well, it was like, it was like a machine and it, uh, it was like a machine and it was also just pure rock and roll, you know? Um, and it was like being in a band where you're just like, you know, jamming, and trading licks and, and taking notes. Um, and so we, you know, hammer our way through, but I'm also growing by leaps and bounds as a writer, you know, as this is happening. And, um, you know, that's how we got the second book done, the sophomore novel, you know, and then, you know, that was done. And then it's time to make the next deal (laughs) as we go on. And as our, our new agents had had said, you know, well, if we're in a good negotiating position, you know, off the first two books, then we can do better on the second three books. And lo and behold, the light at the end came out. And again, as you j- noted a few minutes ago, it was the it was the right book coming out at the right time, because it was a huge appetite for this kind of uh, this kind of story um, and horror as a genre was heating up. And so the light at the end came out. Um, and Lou Aronica was also uh, his publishing philosophy. He was a big believer in mass market paperback, you know, and so mass market paperback was, you know, uh, a thing at that point that was evolving. And so, yeah, because a lot of, because a lot of the trend was hardcover and, and the mass market paperback was a different way to deliver. Exactly. And, you know, uh, the, the, hardcover is nicer and fancier, but it's also more expensive. And so the sales are, you know, the markers of, you know, uh, a successful hardcover novel in the mid eighties. If you sold 10,000 copies, you were golden. I mean, with a mass market paperback, you're operating on magnitudes of scale. It's like you're selling 50,000 copies. You're selling a hundred thousand copies of of mass market paperback because it's cheaper and it's more just sort of like fiction for the people you know um yeah and so so i take it the book was doing pretty well um was there an extra bump for you guys in terms of financial compensation or was that not negotiated well the thing about it is is that we had the we had the good luck of um the light at the end came out in mass market paperback and it ended up on the new york times bestseller list oh my gosh for for you know mass market fiction 
Um, so all of a sudden we're like, you know, this, this weird ride is, was just continuing at the time. And so it comes around to the next book deal for the three books. And, uh, I think we negotiated a deal for $175,000 for three books. Yeah. Because now, now you're, you're not just these kids anymore. I mean, you are, but, but you've proven that you not only produce the work, but the work sells. And we've and we've also delivered another novel, you know. So we're not we're not a flash in the pan. We're not a one hit wonder, you know. Uh, they they see the publisher sees that they can potentially build a future with us, um, and so we negotiated up. And so we had you know it was like a hundred and seventy five thousand dollar deal again in 1980, 1985, 1986 dollars, which I'm going to say that's just under a million or, or it's, something. It's, it's a substantial it's, it's amount a of money, you know. And of, and of course yeah. it comes back to like redux. It's like, and how do you want that? And we're like cash. <laughs> it's like, no, yeah. you did it. I, I was going to ask if you got oh, a bank yeah. account by now. Did you, did you ever get it? Oh, yeah. No, I had a bank account at that point, but I, I still like that rush of just giving the pile of money. You know, it's like, yeah, but at that point you're going to need a duffel bag to take it out of there. <laughs> I have a messenger bag. You know, it's like, <laughs> That's ridiculous. You know, and the fact is, nobody, uh, nobody on the street is going to look at me and think, "Oh, yeah, that guy's carrying like vast amounts of cash." Right. You know, so it's like, what the heck? I'm, you know, yeah, I'm just like, whatever. I'm, you know. Well, and let me go back though for a second. So you became a New York Times best-selling author. Yes. How did that change your life? Well, it's kind of an ego rush, um, and at the same time. Uh, I was starting to go to, I think John had gone to a couple of these before I had never been to one, um, started going to our first sort of, uh, writer conventions, you know, like the world fantasy convention. Okay. And, and the funny thing is, you know, we come in there and, you know, it's, it's a convention where fans come to see, you know, the, the celeb writers and everything. And there's just people are coming up to me, you know, um, and and then editors at other companies are coming up. You know, some editors who had actually gotten uh, gotten the light at the end and rejected it came up. Oh, that's fun! That's fun. <laughs> and you know, and so it was just really stepping into a whole new world. You know, but it's like it's kind of like for me, it's like feeling like a complete outsider who comes into this. You know, this really intense sort of gathering except i have vip access um and so but i didn't have right you're, you're you're not elbowing your way in you know with the with everybody that has the general admission tickets i mean you're the you're the star of the show yeah pretty kind of you know i'm i'm one of these up and coming you know uh you know writers and and then as it turned out there were a number of other writers or a handful of other young writers who were writing in a similar kind of style um all different and all unique unto themselves but but it was like a thing that was happening in the culture in publishing of like this new sort of like energized aggressive form of horror um and it was also being fed by you know there was a boom in horror movies around that time so horror was, yeah. was kind of very exciting you know, around that time, you know, the first Nightmare on Elm Street comes out, you know, all these different, the Lost Boys, come out, you know, all these different movies 
are coming out and horror is, is kind of almost getting respectable, you know? Um, but again, we come in and we, we, we became friends with some of these other writers, um, which was very heady at the time because, you know, I'm traveling. Who, who were some of the writers, Craig? Who Clyde were they? Barker, um, David J. Scow, Richard Christian Matheson, uh, who's the son of Richard Matheson Sr., who was a living legend in, in uh, science fiction, fantasy, and horror at the time. Um, and I'm just meeting all these people, and, and more to the point, I'm reading their work and getting really excited because it's like, God, these, these people kick ass. <laughs> you know, um, the, but you're kind, of, you're kind of a peer with them. You may not have felt that way, but, but you, yeah, were. I'm a peer. We're, we're just like, and you know, and then skip, you know, skip inspector had become its own kind of brand name. You know, I mean, for, we were, uh, you know, I mean, officially we were John skip ampersand and Craig specter. Um, but it, it pretty well boiled itself down to skip and specter became the brand name. Um, and we were sort of a uh, for a, a few years there, you know, during the arc of the climb, uh, we were like this weird mythological beast, the two-headed writer, you know, <laughs> because here we are, we're these two very different people, but we comprise one entity, and so uh, uh, that was an interesting time, and that was kind of into the late '80s and everything when it was all at its peak. And it was it was very exciting. It was a lot of fun. So so what happened? So you you had the you had light at the end that came out. That was a New York Times bestseller. The second book mm-hmm. came out, and then you worked on three more books together. Yeah, and then we had a uh, we had we were going to do the next novel we were going to do uh, was supposed to be our big breakout novel. Uh, that was called The Scream. And that was going to be this epic opus kind of uh, horror. That was going to be like our version of Stephen King's The Stand in a way. Um, and it was a rock and roll, uh, a heavy metal horror story about the good rockers, the bad rockers, and the moral majority. And a, uh, a metal band that was literally sacrificing its groupies to raise a demon. Jeez. Yeah, <laughs> and this was happening right at the same time, if we recall, that uh, that uh, Tipper Gore, wife of uh, Senator Al Gore, was uh, having congressional hearings with the PMRC about satanic influences in rock and roll and all that. You know, if you remember all that stuff that was going on, warning labels going on to albums because, you know, right. what about the children? And we were just, meanwhile, you know, uh, meanwhile, all this stuff is blowing up. But again, people are um, mostly pay- in the pu- in the public eye. People are mostly paying attention to movies, you know, movies or television. Writing is still kind of a place where you could get away with stuff because people are paying attention in terms of selling books and everything. But culturally speaking, um, writers aren't writers and books aren't receiving the same kind of scrutiny as other media forms. And so we could just get away with bloody murder. And we did. And and so you pushed forward with that one. Uh, How did that, how did that one do? uh, We sold about 600,000 copies in paperback. 
And, you know, it was just kind of moving right along. Everything was moving right along. So it, it's at this point, you kind of have, you know, not to be too much of a cliche here, but you kind of have like the Midas touch in a sense that all, all the stuff that you guys are doing is, is really turning to gold. Yeah, we were doing really well there for about five years. We we were doing really well. Although there were, it was funny. There were there were moments because of the of the odd way that uh, you know the publishing contracts pay out. Um, it's entirely possible to uh, you know reach points where like okay, so you've spent your advance, <laughs> you know, um, and you haven't finished the book yet, and you're not going to get paid again until you turn the book in. So what do you do? Um, and we ran into that during the second novel where it's like, okay, we, we blown through, you know, our, our exciting first advance um, and we need money. So we got to do something. And our agents hooked us up with like, well, um, you can do a novelization and you know, it's like, okay, uh, novelization. A novel. What is that? Is, is that you, you take a screenplay and turn it into a novel or what's a novelization? Yes. It, literally you take the screenplay for a movie that's coming out and you turn it into a book. Um, and they put two, they put two, uh, projects in front of us, um, to choose from. And they were both horror stories. Um, and we read both of the scripts and, uh, I, I can't really speak for John. I know I wanted to, uh, I wanted to to do the one that was, uh, you know, it, it it sounded really cool. It looked really cool on paper, and it was going to have like Sting was going to be in it, and it was a retelling of Frankenstein, da 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 da, you know, and and Jennifer Beale was going to be in it, and um, you know, and and it just looked really good, and the other one just looked kind of goofy, you know, um, and it was about a, a you know a, a suburban kid you know, who watches this midnight horror show. And um, he's the only one who realizes that a vampire has moved in next door to him. Um, and at the time I was like, well, that just seems kind of dopey. You know, I, I kind of like the really cool one, you know, um, and then we didn't get it. Um, oh. We didn't get it. That, that of course ended up being the bride. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we didn't get the bride. We got the other one which was Fright Night. Oh, there you go. And it's funny just in the course of, you know, in, in the in the fullness of time, it's like, I don't think people really remember The Bride very much at this point, but Fright Night is kind of like, has a, it has a half-life like plutonium. Uh, I mean, that movie came out and it was, it was so well-received. And it was also funny because we didn't get to see at the time, and this is like the late 80s, but uh, this is... Um, where things were it's like we did not get to see a rough cut of the film we didn't get to see the movie in any way shape or form all we got was the script and some production stills right no nobody's emailing you a private link to vimeo yeah, to check it out they, <laughs> they didn't exist and the relationship of the studio to the writer doing the novelization was way different you know so we're just all kind of off in a corner someplace cranking out a book um, so were you hating life or, or were you happy with the work? No, we just did it. You know, it was one yeah. of those things like it's, it's a money gig and you just kind of bang it out. But the funny thing about it is, is that, you know, when I went to see Fright Night, finally, 
you know, and the book is coming out. And the strange thing about it is, is that the light at the end is still at the, this time. The light at the end hadn't hit the New York Times bestseller list yet because the light at the end hadn't come out yet because Bantam was holding off on publication for various reasons. They're trying to they're trying to window it, and in the meantime, you know, we write the you know we write this down and dirty little novelization, and that ends up coming out before the light at the end comes out. <laughs> you know, and it's like go figure. You know, but you know. And then when we went to see the movie, you know, in the theater, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, yeah. And the movie was a funny movie with some scary shit in it. And otherwise, they're exactly the same, except that the tonality of them is completely different because we had just looking at the production stills and reading the script. The script did not come off the page to me, to my eyes at the time. It it didn't read as funny it read as kind of dumb, you know, um, like the funny bits just was kind of like, well, that's sort of lame, you know? Um, but then again, I wasn't, I wasn't really getting where it was coming from, you know? Um, so we wrote this very scary story, uh, but had humor in it. Um, and then the movie comes out and I see that the movie is really just more of a, it's, it's, it's a send up, you know? Um, and it's actually a, a, it's a it's a very charming, funny movie, but it's got some really scary bits, you know. And so that was kind of a lesson for me. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you know, that it kind of reveals how much the director might have had a part in in bringing some of that together, as well as the acting and all those things. But- yeah, because yeah, because that was Tom Holland's vision, you know. Um, and in subsequent years, I, I went on to meet Tom Holland and we talked about that and everything. And he had a good laugh about that. We had lunch one day and he had a good laugh about that. Um, and the other thing about it is, is like, as you know, that, that day that we first sat down with Lou Ronica and he said, hold all my calls. And, you know, we're just going, and this is the book, you know, we do, you know, we're Skip Inspector and we do books and we do music and we do movies. And he's like, I'm Lou Ronica. I do books. Right. <laughs> it's like, you know, and it's like, okay, so we'll have to figure out how to get the other two parts of this three legged entity, you know, off the ground. And so we started, you know, working on our, uh, our entry into Hollywood and, and sort of cracking the code on that. Hey, filmmakers, I hope you're enjoying this interview series with Craig Spector. In the next episode, we're going to talk about how Craig was able to leverage his career to get out to Hollywood, and he'll share with complete transparency all the crazy ups and downs that came with it. In the meantime, check out FilmmakingStuffHQ.com. It's a membership site and a community for serious entrepreneurial filmmakers, and I think you're really going to like it. So check it out at FilmmakingStuffHQ.com. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Filmmaking Stuff podcast with Jason Brubaker. If you like our show and want to get more filmmaking info, make sure you check out filmmakingstuff.com and join us every week for new filmmaking tactics. Until next time, take action and make your movie now.